Hey folks, I'm Richard Krause. Welcome to the House of Krause Musical Hoot Nanny. Today we have three musicians coming by. Now, they're not all full-time musicians. I guess two of them are. One of them, Kevin Bacon, plays with his band, The Bacon Brothers, when he's not performing in new movies like Cop Car, and we're gonna talk to him about that in just a little while. Uh, the other two are best known as musicians, but also uh, dabble in film. Slash is, of course, best known as the purveyor of hot and heavy licks like Sweet Child of Mine and Welcome to the Jungle from Guns N' Roses. Uh, the guy, when he shook my hand, it nearly crushed it. He's got those really powerful guitar player fingers. Uh, we had a great talk about horror movies, why he likes them, what he likes about them, and we talked a little bit about guitar playing as well. First up, though, Rick Springfield. A little while ago at the House of Krauss, I spoke with Rick Springfield about Late Late at Night, his autobiography, which I found to be absolutely fascinating. It is a no-holds-barred look at his life. He deals with depression in these pages. He deals with career ups and downs. He is brutally frank about all aspects of his life. We had a really illuminating conversation from the man who's back in the public eye again in a very big way this year, appearing on True Detective Season 2. He's in Ricky and the Flash, starring opposite Meryl Streep. Doesn't get much better than that. Uh, but we concentrated on the book and the contents of the book, and I think you'll find the interview really illuminating. Your life seems as dramatic now <laughs> as it was when you were struggling to be known and then maybe in some of the sort of down periods. Do you feel that way, yeah, or is it just my take from no, reading? No, no, I do, I do feel my life is, is... I don't... I never feel at peace. I never feel like I've reached a, a pinnacle of... Uh, you know, I, I've, I've beaten the demons. I, you know, first of all, the depression will, will be, like I say, will be with me for the rest of my life. Right. The darkness. The darkness, right. And, uh, and I'm very passionate, I'm very driven, and still very hungry for, like, I'm as hungry as I was when I was, uh, you know, before I made it. I mean, I, which is why I'm writing, you know, this, prose. I mean, I want to get into a whole other area now. And, and, I love all that. I love to. I love to tour. I'm passionate about touring because that's my connection with people. Um, and uh, I think I think a lot of it is because I wrote this and didn't talk it into a tape recorder and then have a writer write it. That it. I know. All, and as I go along, you know, and I, I think I have a certain. Uh, a certain understanding of of the way a story should flow. You know, I've read all my life, read 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 all my life, and so you know, I mean, I know which points to hit on and which to kind of right. just write a couple of sentences about. And I, you know, when we first started, I did have a ghostwriter when we did the preparation for to sell the book, right. and I told her the story, and and she wrote up a a, a chapter, you know, and I looked at it and I went. This could be anybody's life. Right. You know, it started out with uh, the bar was, you know, wasn't even half full as I got up and picked up my guitar to play, you know, in this restaurant. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going, this, this, is, this is not me. Yeah. This could be anybody. So that, uh, and I think that happens with a lot of autobiographies. And, and 
But, see, but it's the honesty, I think, in this one. Uh, you know, if you talk about, let, let's just take that scene for a second. I think it was in Glendale. You're playing in a restaurant. And uh, there's, the, there's the bit in the book where a woman comes to you and says, hey, you're Rick Springfield. And you're like, yeah, I am, you know. And, and she's like, didn't you used to be somebody or whatever the line was? Right, right, right. And, you know, again, that's uh, – and the, the way you write about that is – it struck me as so true, you know, someone who had sort of just tasted it a little bit at mm-hmm. that point. And then, you know, you never hear about what happens on the other side of right, that right. when you have to deal with the people that look at you funny because you're taking public transportation and you're right, not driving exactly. a Bentley. And right. there's a line in there where I say, what, what am I supposed to do? You know, go bag groceries at yeah. Ralph's and say, you know, hey, honey, isn't that Rick Springfield bagging our yeah, melons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, there is, and I have a couple of friends who have... Uh, Who've gone through a certain amount of fame and uh, yeah. What's the guy who's um, oh, the name is escaping me now? Uh, who had the Bentley or the Rolls Royce or something and had oh, to give it back? Oh yeah, yeah, from uh, from Player, yeah, yeah, Peter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but him not not him so much. It's 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 more actors because they have so much people recognize them because that's how they you know. I have an actor friend who. Who got frustrated at one point? We just—he wasn't working, but he was well enough, well enough known to be, right. you know, people would like occasionally turn in the street and go, "Hey, that's." So you can't get a regular yeah, job. So, so what yeah. do I do? What, what what am I supposed to do now? Go yeah. bag groceries? Yeah. Am I, you know, wh- where do I go from here? And there is that moment, I think, in every, in in not in everyone's life because a lot of people hit it and then yeah. go and you you know. But certainly there was in mine with the whole 70s thing where I had one hit. I was in a slew of magazines, and I think I was the first Paris Hilton where, where kids would come up to me because I was in all these magazines and ask them autograph, but not really have a real clear idea of what I did. Right. They didn't yeah. know if I, maybe I was an actor, maybe was I a singer, right. was I on some TV show they hadn't seen, you yeah. know? I just recognize his face. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You're Rick Springfield. And, and you know, again, I, the, the, the letter from the kids saying, can't wait to come to... Hollywood and see your mansion, you know, yeah, yeah. and I was raiding my goofy piggy bank for hungry men <laughs> dinners. It's kind of, uh, that can be really freaking soul destroying yeah. unless, you know, I, I had a vision and I knew that something would happen eventually. And I think it was my drive and persistence that, that helped me not to give up. Yeah. I think it's all about patience. Mm. I think it's all about sticking it out. And the people, the people that stick it out, yeah. you know, knock wood, they're the ones that make it. Yeah, Everyone exactly. gives up too early. A lot of, a lot of talent, more talented people than I am who, who stopped and are, you know, yeah. by, st- stay by the roadside. You yeah. know. Uh, do you think that personifying your depression by calling him Mr. Darkness and the Darkness, and as you do all the way through the book from very early on, do you think that uh, has given you a way to deal with it in a, in a way that other people maybe don't understand because you have an image of what it is or you have an idea of this? You know, I got the idea that oh, every time you refer to the darkness sitting over there, I, I don't know, for in, Mr. D. It, in Mr. D, in my in my mind, it's like a, a guy with a, a, you know, a, a cigarette holder and a, you know, a, and a tuxedo in a goatee. I don't know. Like, you know, but I personified it. And yeah. I think that that made me understand it more. Has that worked with you? Yeah, I, it, that was a surprise for me, actually, in the writing. He su- he suddenly appeared. That was not, I didn't, I, I'm not the kind of writer that, that you know, writes out a, 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 you know what do you call it a, a so game plan just, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, I just launch into it I just finished writing a script and I started the same way I didn't have a beginning I didn't have an end I just said I'm going to start writing a script and and that's the way I used to write as a kid you know they they give you 
I, it was the only thing I ever got uh, good grades and attention on at school were my essays. Everything else I was terrible at. But they, you know, they give you a line. The girl walked into the store and, you know, noticed the, the man behind the counter looked kind of, look, looked edgy. And that and then I'd write and it would just and I'd just make that up as I go along and it would form a story and it would be something really I felt was really good. Yeah. And so that's the way I write. And um uh and so he he appeared. Mr. D just appeared yeah. through through the narrative. And I, I went I called him one time, I called him Miss my darkness and then I started viewing him as this guy, you know, sitting over there. I have my mental view of him, and it's great that, that you do, but I think it helped the story that, that he had a, he was in the third person. It made some interesting conversations. It made... It made me understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it made him an interesting... It, it, it made it less model and less woe is me, less poor me. It was, right. you know, this, this dick of a guy sitting over there fucking with me <laughs> all the time, and that's what it really feels like, you know? I mean, I'll... Like I say, in, in, uh, I, sometimes I'll feel good and I'll start going, doo, doo, yeah. you know, start tapping, and he'll be sitting over there and he'll go, yeah, everything's just fucking great, isn't it, dipshit? <laughs> and I'll go, no, it's not. You're right. I feel like shit. I'm right. I'm, yeah. Why am I being so happy? I'm, uh, I have nothing to be that happy about. So it is that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and like I said, he, he really did suddenly appear in the book. Last question. Um, Jesse's Girl, I think, would be your best-known song. I think it's fair to say that. Unquestionably uh, true. In the book, though, you're not dismissive of it. You say you're very proud of it all the way through. But you are kind of you push it aside often. What What are your feelings about that song? I'm very, very proud of it. But I have done other things. I mean, you know, it's really it's more than a hit song. And and actually, not every writer produces a song that has done what Jesse's Girl's done. It's taken on a life of its own. There's nothing I did. I mean, it's up to the music gods and the people who, how they view it. I mean, I had nothing to do with putting in, in Boogie Nights. I had nothing to do with it being Glee. I had nothing to do with it being the center of 13 going on 30. I had nothing to do with it being, you know, put in Friends when Friends was the, the hottest show on TV. And it was just, you know, it for some reason, it's one of those one of those uh, 80s, you know, iconic songs. And, and I'm incredibly grateful for that because, you know, every writer wants one. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I am never, ever, I never go, oh, God, can we stop talking? I do it as a joke in the book. Now, can we stop talking about Jesse's fucking girl for the moment? I like, you know, so, but that's kind of a way of wrapping up all the great things that it's done. But I'm very proud of it. You know, it does overshadow other stuff. They always play that. I, I, I think that I've written better songs, you know, but that one they'll probably play at my funeral. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Rick Springfield at the House of Kraus talking about his book, Late, Late at Night. There's more to him than Jesse's Girls. Check out the book. It's a really interesting read. Now, in Cop Car, it's a B-movie thriller about two kids who steal a police vehicle for a joyride. Kevin Bacon plays Sheriff Kretzer. He's a bad cop who's short on dialogue but long on menace. It's a really intense role, but it's interesting. He tells me that it's the kind of thing that he wouldn't have done earlier on in his career. We spoke when he phoned in to the House of Krauss, and here's that conversation. One of my favorite things in movies is that we can learn about the character and we can learn about the story uh, without being told. 
show me, don't tell me. And I thought that Sheriff uh, uh, Kretzer was a good example of that. Someone who just by his physicality, by the mustache, by all that sort of stuff, told us a great deal of what we needed to know about the character. Other than the script work, the stuff that was written on the page, how did you find the character? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're cluing into the reason why I was so excited about doing it. You know, when I first started becoming an actor, I, I would judge a, a role by how many lines I had, and then, and then later on by where's my big scene, you know. Um, and as time has gone on, I, I really love the idea of trying to um, use everything that cinema has to offer, uh, you know, in terms of helping you um, unfold a mystery of who somebody is, and and um, that's that that's what was so great about this. And and so the first thing was to kind of get on the same page with with John Watts about what my ideas were, and it's one of those guys that I don't know, you know, somehow. Even though there was very little being said, I just I, I saw him right away, and I heard his voice. You know, I I, I had an Im, I had an image for who he would be. It just kind of it just sometimes it just comes to me in that way. You know, and and I started to kind of lay it out to John, and he was into it. You know, he was he was into it, and and we started to uh, talk a little bit more about. Um, what the backstory would be, but also to be, we wanted both to be very careful to uh, understand the backstory, but but not explain it, you know, and 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 let an audience, as you said, you know, put the pieces together, make some hypothesis on their on their own about why, you know, I mean, a perfect example is when I, I go into the closet and I start dragging that 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 stuff out of the out of the closet to throw in there. It's like whoa, 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 where did where where did that come from? What's been going on? You know? Little things that you see around that house. I mean, for instance, that's a house that at some point a family lived in. You know, you can tell that it's not you know, that it's a it's a family's house. Um, you know, what's that relationship that he has with those dogs? Uh you know, all those kinds of things were were um were really fun. I really, I really enjoyed that, and and uh, I see it's it's given an audience uh, the benefit of the doubt that they can, you know, um, go on this go on this ride with us, and that we don't have to um, we don't have to lead them. That they'll that they'll that they'll you know metaphorically you know jump in the car and come along. Do you, do you think it speaks to your comfort level as an actor now that you're willing to take that chance and not have to rely on, I don't want to say a crutch, but I guess the crutch of having a lot of dialogue to express the feelings and the ideas behind the character? I, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I think it's something that, you know, I had to sort of um, come to, you know. I mean, I remember, you know, going back, you know, you look at something like like um, Diner, and I was I was kind of, you know, I didn't want that part because that was the part where the guy didn't say much. You know, um, I didn't I didn't know I didn't know or trust that um, who he was would come through with things like you know I'm sitting there watching that. Do you know the movie Diner at all? Yeah, yeah you know, like watching that college bowl scene. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about that as being like, oh, man, I totally got the guy then. But, you know, on the page, I didn't get that. I was, I was too naive to understand that. 
but in the course of um, in the course of my my career, I have yeah, I've, I've started to to realize because because the camera sees so much more than than we see in real life. You know, it's not that it just shoots real life; it's that it goes deeper. You shoot somebody's eyes, and you do a close up on on someone's eye, and you see things that the human eye can't see. It goes it actually reaches down into your into a person's soul, so that you you're 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 exposed to something that is um, you know that is 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 deeper and, and more beautiful, and that's what's so great about being in movies. So that if you can kind of learn to trust. Um, that the actual hardware that we work with is going to help you with that job of telling the story, then, then that's something that, you know you can learn over time. On the first day of the shoot, apparently uh, your director said to you, is this your first student film? <laughs> so it's, it's a much it's, it's a much different kind of production for you, I guess. As an actor, does that feed you a little bit? Are you working by instinct a little bit more because you don't have the luxury of a hundred takes and you know all that sort of thing? Well, let me first off say that it's 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 not an unusual experience for me. I've done a lot of independent films, and I have from the very beginning of my career. I've gone back and forth. Um, some less successful than you know uh, than Cop Car. I've also directed uh, films on a, on a shoestring budget, and I've also you know worked a lot in, in television. If you look at um, doing doing 43 minutes of uh, of basically an action thriller, which is what the following was, and we would do it in in nine days. That's kind of like making an independent film every week. Um, there is not a lot of time for a lot of takes. It's what you know. It's running and gunning. Uh, so I I like I like that situation, you know. To me, um, to get on a set and be asked, you know, for take fifteen, take sixteen, you know, uh, I don't know if I've got anything left to give. You know, I I, I think it sometimes it could be diminishing returns. I, I make really strong choices. I do a lot of homework and I I get myself ready so that when they turn that camera on. I'm ready to go, and frankly, uh, I'd rather get it in, in in a couple of takes. You know, that's the way Eastwood works, and that was that's why it was such a, a joy to to make Domestic River. You know, because because we knew that that was the deal. So you know, do your homework, get your shit together, come come to work wearing your game jersey, and and, and let's let's get this shit done. You know, I mean, um, the one the one day that we did multiple takes was on the scene where I'm talking to the uh, dispatch when I get back and realize that the car is gone because John really had this idea that he wanted that to play in one. And if you go back and look at it, it does. You know, I find the car, I start to run away, I come back, I take out the cell phone, I talk, I walk off camera, I come back on camera, it, I kind of walk one direction, walk another direction, then I go up and I run away. And it's all, it all plays in one take. And so the, to get that, technically and in focus and performance and all those things lining up was, you know, unusual, but it was kind of like he, he kind of scheduled it and said, well, this is all we're going to do today is just really do this, you know, a couple of cutaways, but this is really basically what we're going to do. So um, we all knew that that was going to be the deal. I think it's about a loss of innocence. It's about, right. it, it, it's not about all the stuff that's immediately obvious. I don't think, and you're right. it, it, it's hitting people on a different level. You're right. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, wh what do we have to say? I mean, what we have to say is two kids steal a cop car. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's 
and it's a you know it's quote unquote a ride, and you know it's a, it's a thriller, and it's edge of your seat, and you know Bacon is a bad guy, and, and you know we get we get we get that, but you know, but really, it's about a loss of innocence, like you said, it's about. Um, you know, it's what those those two little boys um, who are, you know, living within uh, with this kind of almost almost you know almost kind of utopian kind of um, little boy world, you know, uh, and then it all gets kind of blown up in their face, you know, and you, and it's, it's, it's sad to know that their innocence, their enthusiasm and their, their, um, joy about being a kid is going to be changed forever from this one experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it, you know, really, really powerful in that way. I, I, I think it's a, it's a, I think it's a surprisingly, um, kind of moving emotional film. I know my wife feels that way. I think people know that you were born in England. Uh-huh. I didn't realize kind of how much of an influence that would have had on this part of your life. Right. Well, I mean, you know, to start, my parents were big horror fans. So they, they, they uh, my dad turned me on to a lot of literature when I was really, really young. He, he, he gave me, you know, he turned me on to Ray Bradbury and Edgar Allan Poe and, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember one of the coolest things that he did was he gave me a box of the War of the World tapes. Oh, yeah. The, the Orson, Orson Welles. Welles yeah. uh, narration. You know, and that's what's, and he told me the whole thing about it. And my dad was uh, very well-read British, and he, he's very uh, uh, well-read, you know, right. that's the best way to put it. And he he had a great way of sort of delivering these stories to me and getting me into it. And then my mom turned me on to all the classic horror movies from the 30s and the 50s and the you know and I was born in the 60s. So yeah. everything that was currently going on from that point on, I went with her to to go see and that kind of thing. But the Hammer movies in England, I remember very well. The sort of B movies that uh, all these crazy. Well, they had the Monster best posters. Story. Oh, yeah. They had the yeah. best posters, Hammer films. And they also had, uh, they were really, I don't know, lurid, I guess mm-hmm. is the only way you could use to describe them, right? The blood was like redder than yeah. any other red blood you'd seen anywhere. Uh, you know, there were always like the best looking girls in them, Barbara uh-huh. Steele and all those people. So the horror films or the Hammer films had mm-hmm. a lot going for them. Yeah, I remember being a huge Oliver Reed fan. Yeah. And then, of course, Vincent Price and that whole list of great uh, British horror actors yeah yeah but yeah so i mean i I think um you know like i i have two kids and 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 one of them just has a natural affinity for horror and one of them doesn't i was one of those (laughs) kids that just was like spiders and snakes and ghouls and goblins and and have never changed the horror fans i think are the purest fans in the sense that they uh they go for what they like well it's 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 funny because you know being in the the rock and roll Mm -hmm. business uh it, horror horror fans and heavy metal fans are a lot alike. They're it's a very particular niche, and yeah. and and the fans know a lot about uh, the genre. They yeah. know what they like. They're very particular. They know what they don't like. And horror, and metal fans are the same way. They're very loyal. They know exactly what's cool and what's not cool. They know when it's fake and when it's not fake. And that's uh, uh, similar with horror. Uh, so yeah. we're talking about music a little bit. So let's talk about the score. Uh, to the film um, is really effective cool score. Tell me a little bit about putting that together um, Well, the cool thing about being a producer is you can get 
on the score early. <laughs> so so uh, Anthony had uh, storyboarded the movie out pretty pretty early. Um, and that's, I started writing music or, you know, just basically coming up with different ideas and then I would spoon feed them basically to Anthony to see which ones he sort of had a taste for. And that went on for a little period of time and there was a couple things that were picked out and then eventually there was a theme song, which ended up being the basis for a lot of the, uh, certain parts of that song, uh, instrumentally made its way into the movie. Right. But, uh, Anthony introduced me, we didn't want it to be a guitar driven, uh, score. Mm -hmm. And so Anthony introduced me to a friend of his, uh, Nick O'Toole and said, and he's, he's a, a scoring composer, sound designer, brilliant guy. Um, and so we hit it off and I just started going over the stuff that, that Anthony was cool with and giving it to to Nick and he would make uh, orchestral interpretations of it. It was a really fascinating experience for me because I'm not a, a, a scoring composer per right. se. I don't technically, it's really hard for me to sit there and watch the counters and, and right. yeah, yeah. I can just sort of play by feel and, and watch the scene and sort of make up stuff. Anyway, but uh, and, and so just to be like, so you 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 did like you you did record it that way, and then that was given to someone that transposed it for the orchestra. Exactly, like, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, and he's and he's a, a a brilliant melodic guy, and he he really did all the the heavy lifting for right. this movie. And and uh, you know, I, I we we'd sit together, and he and I would sit together, and we'd go through whatever ideas he'd worked on, and 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 sort of put in there in the morning and sort of mess around with stuff. And it was just a lot of fun. And then a couple of days a week, Anthony would come over and, and Anthony has absolutely no knowledge of music. Whatsoever. <laughs> None, but really? he's, None. he's got a, a great, uh, a great feel for the right. emotional, uh, what's, what's going on emotionally right. on the screen. And so he would really f fine tune and pick things that didn't necessarily fit the emotional, uh, uh, thing that he was looking for. Right. And so he would go, can you just make this go up or can you make this go down? And there's three of us sitting there. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it, it was pretty funny, but we had a, we had a really good time doing it. And I thought one thing I'm really proud of is the way that the score supports what's going on on the screen, like fully, you know, and that's really important to me because I love movies where you've got, you know, uh, a, a great story and a visual, and then you have the, the right accompaniment. Uh, are there scores that really influenced you, or, or is there a score that that you remember going that well, you know that that just really did what you just said influenced your your feel about the whole? Well, you movie? know, you you hear stuff in movies, and and as a musician, you listen mm -hmm. a lot more to the score than maybe mm -hmm. the average person does. Yep. But a lot of what a, a person goes through. Uh, in a drama or in a scary movie or whatever, a, a lot of the feelings that they're having as the movie's going along is influenced by the score without them even knowing it. That's right. what really drives it home. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, probably the, the most iconic score I can think of for a scary movie has got to be Jaws. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. there's there's nothing more effective than that that foreboding. Boom, dun, boom. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but there's been, uh, I mean, Clockwork Orange, which was all um, classical. It was Beethoven. It was... Yeah. An amazing score, you know, even though it was already recorded music, but it well I love the idea of that score because what it does is it takes music that you're familiar with puts it in a different, a different context, context and it yeah. makes it even crazy yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, And that to me is 
uh, was the brilliance of that. Yeah, there's certain Beethoven pieces that I'll hear and I'm automatically picture the scene in Clockwork Orange. Singing in the rain. I can never hear without seeing that scene in yeah, my head. And it's too bad because it's a song about innocence and, you know, beauty and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's just the it's, most vile scene and it goes yeah. in the story. I, I've seen movies recently. Um, I won't name names. Where <laughs> the, movie, the movie itself is actually pretty good, but when it, when you start to really listen to what's going on, it's a separate thing, right? Yeah. And it yeah. doesn't do anything for you. I and it could be so much stronger if they they worked in tandem. Do you think that you're a little more attuned to it because you're a musician? And and I I can only imagine that you hear things a little differently than the rest of us. Well, like I remember Fantasia when I was a kid. That was you know such a a, a big musical. I mean, obviously it was a a uh, musical, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, I mean that that was really important to me as a kid. So I think I've always listened for the music way before I ever became a musician. But now I can actually play something, so I can I can execute it. If I hear something in my head or I feel something, I can find the notes on the on the guitar and try and express it. Do you play guitar every day? I desperately, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I play all the time, except for right now because I didn't bring a guitar to Toronto with yeah. me. Just wrap up. Does the day feel incomplete? I guess is the question. Unless you play guitar. Yeah, you know, when I get home from this little this little quick trip, I'll be desperate to get on my guitar and all the stuff that's going on in my head. Apply it to the instrument, so I make sure I don't forget it. You know. And and is there are there hundreds of hours of tape sitting around just waiting to be released someday? No, it's not. Everything that I'm working on gets released. You know, thereafter, pretty quickly. Yeah. I don't like to have stuff. There is, there is uh, a fair share of music that I haven't done anything with, probably just because it wasn't good enough. But, or yeah. anything that is sort of like, is there uh, French madrigal music or something like that that would surprise <laughs> us? You know, sitting yeah, around there. No, it's at the record store. It's just under a different name. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it for the first annual House of Kraus Hootenanny. You just know that somewhere right now, Slash is playing guitar and happily so. But right now, it's over for us. My bongo drums have gone out of tune and that's just ruined the whole thing for me. So it's time for you guys to leave. But be sure to come back next week because every Monday we put up a new episode and you never know who's going to stop by the House of Kraus. My thanks to Kevin Bacon, my thanks to Slash, my thanks to Rick Springfield, and my thanks to you for listening. <laughs>